Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after a message from our sponsor. For more than 100 years, Raytheon has proven its commitment to partnering with industries and allies in Europe to advance new technologies and increase protection against a full spectrum of threats. In a world of uncertainty, Raytheon is defending our transatlantic partners by creating trusted, tested and innovative solutions that make the world a safer place. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast, coming to you this week as a special NATO-themed episode. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe. What a weird week. I feel like I say that often in 2018, but this week takes the cake. The week started, continued, and will surely end with scenes of political farce. Here in Brussels at the NATO summit, US President Donald Trump was all over the place. One minute he was trying to sound tough on Russia by claiming Germany is actually controlled by Russia. Then he tried to move the NATO goalposts. He mooted the idea of doubling NATO's defense spending target to a full 4% of GDP the moment it was confirmed that NATO allies are in fact all increasing their defense spending just like Trump asked them to. Then on Thursday morning came reports that Trump once again threatened to pull out of NATO. Yet right alongside all that political whiplash, there was a serious and useful discussion taking place amongst a thousand or so people who run and influence NATO on a daily operational basis. That was a symposium called NATO Engages. I was there, and the contrast with the real thing was both real and weird. Back to the leaders again, we also have some iconic photos to now ponder, including of NATO leaders looking dazed and confused as they observed a military flyover. And when the leaders arrived for their official dinner, they saw a truly bizarre spectacle of a woman floating above them, strapped to and dangling from several hundred balloons. It wasn't a protest, that was the official entertainment. Then there's British Prime Minister Theresa May, the world's leading zombie Prime Minister, who made it to the summit in the end. But that wasn't at all guaranteed when the week began, chiefly because she was abandoned by her Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, in the middle of a special Balkans summit that he convened in London, and just days ahead of both the NATO summit and President Trump's visit to London, which itself will feature protests such as a naked blimp of Trump floating over central London. Weird, definitely. Is Russia's Vladimir Putin rubbing his hands with glee watching all of this? You can bet on it. So let's get to hearing from a range of Europeans and Americans at the NATO summit. Instead of just one or two interviews this week, before we get to our Brussels Brains Trust panel, we're going to hear from five people. They range from former United States Ambassadors Alexander Vershbow and Daniel Fried, to Nobel Peace Prize winner and anti-nuclear campaigner Beatrice Finn, and journalist Paul Taylor and think tanker Constance Stelzenmuller. 
I asked Paul Taylor, who's been covering NATO summits since 1982, what's changed about the alliance since then. I think we've gone from the Soviet Union as our clearly identified major adversary and a sense that we all had to rally around despite our differences because our existence and our security was at stake to an alliance where not everybody feels that they're facing existential challenges and there's more room for people to disagree and where we have the United States for the first time led by a president where we're not really sure how committed he is to European security and to America's role in it. So in some ways NATO needs to reinvent a sort of Nike doctrine, just do it. You know, the Europeans have to take more into their own hands and they have to do so while trying to keep the United States engaged, but they have to do it in a way that allows them to provide somewhat for their own security if the United States really does pull back. Paul told me that even though the Trump drama is engrossing, many of his points come from an old playbook. Inside the summit, there's one bull in a china shop act, which is focusing so much of the attention and potentially sucking the oxygen out of NATO. In 1982, Ronald Reagan was trying to stop Germany doing a gas pipeline deal with the then Soviet Union, saying it would make Europe hopelessly dependent on Soviet gas and therefore under the control of the Soviet Union. And what do we hear President Trump say today? Germany's under the control of Russia. So in Does that make him boring and repetitive? or correct? Well, I, I think it makes, it, it's probably neither. Actually, it turns out that the gas relationship has not really been one of, of, of political dependency and strategic dependency. After all, Germany, let's not forget, was in the lead of rallying the international community to impose sanctions on Russia after it annexed Crimea and destabilized eastern Ukraine. So Germany is not entirely spineless. Joining me as I chatted to Paul was another leading think tanker at the NATO Engagers Symposium, Constance Stelschenmuller, a German who works at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. and writes for the Washington Post. I asked her whether there's room for anyone else in NATO, given the space Trump's tantrums and tactics occupy. I do think we matter, and I don't think there's only one big stakeholder who matters. For one, there is another North American country in the alliance, and that's Canada, which put in a first-rate performance here this morning, represented by its PM, its foreign minister, and its defense minister. And then, of course, there is Europe and Turkey. All of us have a stake in this alliance and continue to do so. It's harder to do without an American president who believes in this alliance, but we know that we have to do this for ourselves, if nothing else. I can see NATO becoming a house for European security and defense with a guest room for the Americans. It would be a lot more difficult, but I think we always have to keep that guest room. As for us think tankers here, in some ways our role has become even more important than ever. For one, as policymakers engage in 24-7 crisis management and POTUS management around the clock, we're the ones supplying long-term strategic thinking and ideas. And conversely, we're also playing a greater role explaining to the larger public what these issues are about and why they should care about them. Politico reporter Kate Bolangaro, who has been covering the NATO summit, spoke to Daniel Fried, a former U.S. ambassador to Poland who also served as the U.S. State Department's top European official. She asked him about the risks in Donald Trump's approach to NATO. I don't see what American interest is served by trashing our alliances. I want America's adversaries to be alone. I don't want America to be alone. The question now for Trump is, you've, you've shaken everybody up, you've turned the table over, 
How are you going to put things together? He could do this, but I don't see evidence of it yet. I hope he does. Now, as we discovered with the Singapore summit with North Korea, it's one thing to tweet that you've won. It's quite another thing to actually win. The Poles and the Baltic states are all spending what Trump says countries ought to spend, which is the 2% of GDP on the military. They're doing it. Moreover, the Central and Eastern Europeans ought to remind Trump that we won, America won the Cold War because of what they did, the Balts, the Poles, and others, to overthrow communism in their own country. Remember Solidarity and Lekvowensa? They helped take down the Iron Curtain. And that was a pretty good deal. Our security is not separate and apart from the security of Central and Eastern Europe. A hundred years of American foreign policy demonstrates that pretty clearly. We fought two world wars because of these issues. And the Poles and others are in a good position to remind President Trump that we're in this together. Next, we hear from Ambassador Alexander Vershbo, a former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Russia, and South Korea. He also served as Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Ambassador, welcome to the EU Confidential podcast. This is obviously a very tense summit. There are concerns that uh, the Trump administration isn't on board in the way that other allies are used to. There are obviously legitimate criticisms of some of those allies for not uh, paying their fair share into the system. What's your take on how those allies should be approaching the Trump administration? Well, it's it's true that this is a high-anxiety summit. But you said the Trump administration. Of course, the Trump administration seems quite solid on NATO. And I've heard that the preparations for this meeting have gone extremely well. A lot of the uh, important initiatives were U.S. ideas, including this readiness initiative, the so-called 430s plan. The new command structure is also designed by the Supreme Commander, General Scaparotti. So the administration is fine. The question is whether President Trump agrees with his own administration. Clearly, he has a real issue when it comes to the defense spending lag when it uh, comes to many European countries, but I think he's not looking at the bigger picture. First of all, all the allies are increasing spending. The majority have plans to reach 2%. But more importantly, they're doing many other things that strengthen NATO and take burdens off the shoulders of the United States. More troops in Afghanistan, putting troops in the Baltic states as NATO's forward defense. The Europeans are shouldering a real burden in all of these things. Trump does strike me as a very tactical president, and at that level, you might argue his tactics are succeeding. He throws out an unbelievable gambit, and then he gets some of what he asked for, where we are going to see eight of those allies hit their target. So maybe he's asking for more than he thinks he's going to get, and and he'll, he'll settle. Yeah, I would like to believe that that's what's going on, and maybe you're right. It could be uh, art of the deal, NATO style, but that's not yet clear. I thought he was declaring victory a few months ago when Secretary General Stoltenberg came to Washington. Trump praised him for beating the Allies over the head until they actually increased defense spending. But there there has to be a point when you declare victory and move forward, you know, cut the deal and focus on the future. And that pivot is not yet evident when it comes to Trump's tactics. And, of course, this is reinforced by the concerns allies have that he doesn't kind of believe in NATO. He's so transactional, he's so ahistorical, that he really doesn't see the value that the United States derives from having strong allies 
who do things that benefit our security and create a space where our businesses and our agricultural exporters can prosper to a far greater degree than if we were living in a chaotic dog-eat-dog kind of world. Now, you're a true NATO insider. What's something that we don't know about what NATO does? We're talking here at the NATO Engages Symposium, which seems like a real outreach effort. It's NATO not just doing hard power, but looking at the relationships that underpin whatever that hard power can do. Um, What's something that you think the world needs to know about NATO that they don't see in the headlines? Yeah, I think people pay the most attention to the sort of the hard edge of NATO, and there's good news there when, when it comes to strengthening deterrence deploying the forces in the East, increasing readiness. But I think there's less understanding about some of the political activities NATO engages in that help stabilize our uh, wider neighborhood, defense capacity building, helping to train local forces and reform uh, ministries of defense in countries from Mauritania to Egypt and Tunisia to Morocco. These are important ways of increasing stability, increasing partners' ability to solve their own problems, and reducing the likelihood that NATO will have to engage in another costly intervention. Also gets at some of the root causes of instability that produce the mass migration that is so much on the the minds of European citizens. So there's a whole range of partnership activities that relate to the Middle East. There's others that are relating to the former Soviet Union, even Central Asia, that people have no idea NATO is engaged in. And it's part of, I think, the wider mission that NATO undertook at the end of the Cold War, that was a much better choice for NATO than going out of business, as, uh, as the Russians might have preferred. Ambassador Alexander Vashbar, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Good to be with you. Next up, I speak to Beatrice Finn, the rather extraordinary millennial Swede who took her grassroots anti-nuclear campaign all the way to the Nobel Peace Prize. And she's on the way towards an international treaty banning nuclear weapons. Welcome, Beatrice. Thank you very much. So it's an interesting week to be in Brussels for the latest NATO summit. Tell us, how do you like to engage with NATO? At the surface level, it feels like you're in great opposition to the world's biggest military alliance. How does it feel on the front lines of that engagement? Well, I'm here for the NATO Engage Summit and, of course, for the NATO Summit, which is really great. I think there's a misunderstanding that if you're against nuclear weapons, you're somehow against NATO, which is not true. Our campaign is based on really preventing humanitarian consequences of weapons that are indiscriminate and inhumane. Nuclear weapons are a weapon of mass destruction. The consequences would violate international humanitarian law, the laws of war. It would not protect civilians in warfare. And all these things are not in contradiction to a military alliance. NATO should follow the laws of war. NATO should protect civilians in conflict. So we are here to point out that NATO needs to change its policy when it comes to nuclear weapons. We don't expect every single NATO state to move in the same pace, just as they did not move in the same pace on banning landmines or cluster munitions, or even joining the MPT ones. And you have some very interesting characters who are at the top of the NATO game. So Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, he was actually involved in kicking off your campaign when he was in the Norwegian government, wasn't he? Yeah, we had a lot of support uh, originally from his government in Norway. Uh, They funded ICANN. They started really trying to reframe the humanitarian sort of perspective on nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons has always been seen as a security issue. And Norway, who had just banned cluster munitions and led that process and led the landmines prohibition process, 
this. Also wanted to make sure that nuclear weapons was just not a security issue. It also has a humanitarian angle. So they put a lot of effort under the Stoltenberg government into this. And when they lost the election, the government sort of shifted and he came to NATO where he has a completely different role and expressed very different opinions, of course. And then the other big character is Donald Trump, where... On the one hand, he seems committed to denuclearizing the Korean peninsula, but he's a very volatile individual with a huge nuclear arsenal at his disposal. How do you cope with that world where Donald Trump could be potentially your friend, but at very clear risk of being a big enemy to the campaign as well? I mean, it's been a pretty crazy one and a half year with that administration. Lots of news. I mean, he said some outrageous things about nuclear weapons. He has a new nuclear posture review that lowers the bar for when to use nuclear weapons. And he's commissioned these new types of nuclear weapons, small, more usable, what they say. It's extremely reckless and dangerous behavior. He brags about his size of the button and that he has more weapons than anyone else and we're going to be the biggest and the mightiest threatens to totally destroy a whole country. At the same time, we were very positive about his efforts with North Korea. The fact that they met was a good step. Diplomacy is always preferable to nuclear war. Thank you. Uh, But at the same time, we've seen very little of the actual concrete details. The negotiations haven't even started there, so there's still a long way to go. But I think he's really raised the stakes for people. People are starting to remember that we have nuclear weapons. There are 15,000 nuclear weapons. And when he says we need to denuclearize North Korea, we also have to think about American nuclear weapons, British nuclear weapons, French nuclear weapons, Russians, Pakistani Indians. I mean, there's nuclear weapons all around the world right now, and they're extremely dangerous. So at one level, the spread of nuclear weapons has been continuous in a sense since they were first developed. There aren't really any countries that gave them up. But at the same time, it feels like there is a much greater awareness, a mega trend behind your campaign, which is that people know the dangers in a way they they didn't before Hiroshima. But starting with that campaign for nuclear disarmament that we saw in the Cold War and continuing on with your campaign now, there are new conventions against uh, nuclear testing and so on. Like, it feels like eventually things are moving in your direction. Absolutely. I mean, last year we had a historic breakthrough where the majority of states in the world gathered at the UN and negotiated and concluded a treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons. Just as the conventions that prohibit biological and chemical weapons, why should nuclear weapons still remain legal? And this is really a start of the process of sort of delegitimizing and stigmatizing nuclear weapons. Because for far too long we have left nuclear weapons being accepted, we accept that some have them, sort of like a nuclear apartheid system. The laws are different for different countries. And I think that has been driving this additional proliferation. Uh, North Korea is looking at the United States and saying, I want that. So really the problem was that we never said nuclear weapons are bad. The governments all agreed to some kind of vague commitment that yes, it would be better to have a world without nuclear weapons, but we're not going to do anything about it. So this treaty is really trying to mobilize the big majority and drive forward a new norm that really draws the line. The same way as, you know, the conventions on other weapons, uh, landmines, cluster munitions, biological weapons, chemical weapons, and then start moving towards their elimination. And this is, of course, a long-term process. International law and norm-making is not fast progress. But the reactions from the nuclear arms states, the reaction from some people in NATO, for example, show how threaten the field by this treaty, that they really are being put on the spot here. Are you accepting weapons of mass destruction or are you not? 
And is it important that you really engage directly? Is that why you've decided to come and, and be involved in these events around the summit where you fight every battle on every front as slowly or as quickly as you can? Absolutely. I mean, now we have the treaty. We're working to get the majority of states, with or without the nuclear armed states on board, to sign and ratify it so it will become international law. And then we'll have a pressure tool. We'll have something that shifts the way we see nuclear weapons. And now we're going to take that kind of stigmatization work to every place where nuclear weapons are being discussed. So here, of course, these countries are champions of human rights and, you know, big promoters of humanitarian law, yet their military is involved in plans and preparations to mass murder civilians with weapons of mass destruction. And to put that and pressure a country like Germany, a country like Norway, a country like Belgium, for example, with that kind of messaging and saying that the rest of the world has prohibited it. You are the outliers. You're the one outside international law. It's really effective, and it's going to put and build this kind of pressure on them to disarm. Beatrice Finn, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. After a message from our sponsor, it's time for the podcast panel. Every day, Raytheon's most advanced capabilities, ranging from missile defense to cyber, help NATO allies protect what matters most. Our long-standing partnerships with European industry drive local innovation and allow small and medium enterprises to benefit from international programs and technology transfer. From outer space to cyberspace, Raytheon's network of interoperable systems turns data into defense, giving European partners the most modern and reliable protection. And now it's time for our favorite part of the podcast, the podcast panel. Welcome back, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Welcome back, Lena. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva. We're going to start on a positive note today because it would be just way too easy to go into the EU WTFs immediately. So let's start with a thumbs up, Alva. What have you been reading about the Swedish renewable energy market? Yeah, Sweden is 12 years in advance on hitting its 2030 renewable targets because it has installed so many renewable power generators and turbines and things. What? They got to 18 terawatt hours already? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, I suggested this because... I think we all need to do better on climate change. Um, They seem to be taking it really seriously. So it's a bit of a kind of, yeah, they can be a role model for the rest of Europe, I think. Germany was trying very hard on the renewable front. Maybe if they tried a little bit harder, okay, admittedly they didn't have a lot of sun to work with, we wouldn't be in this NATO situation now with Trump attacking them over Nord Stream. Exactly. That's a segue. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Yeah, so I think that is a big thumbs up. Lena, you're nodding. We're going to take that as approval and moving on. (laughs) Lena is not very happy this morning because she has been severely disrupted by the NATO summit that has been taking place this week. And this is part of a cavalcade of summits. We obviously had the EU Leaders Summit at the very end of June. Then we've had a Ukraine-Japan summit. We've got a China summit coming, a Latin America and Caribbean summit after that. And of course, it's the NATO summit this week. Tell us about those helicopters, Lena, have they been a 
affecting your sleep? <laughs> it's not only my affecting my sleep. And, and yesterday, all around the Schumann area, it's like as if there's an invasion of helicopters. It doesn't make sense that every summit we have to suffer with the helicopters, with the traffic jam, with the police. It's exhausting even for the Belgian police, seriously. I mean, uh, these people work around the clock, never forgetting that we had the terror threat was really high. And these people need to a little bit to relax between one summit to the other. Why don't they go somewhere and they just meet in one place? So if they built the NATO there, outside of the Schumann area, let them stay there, the NATO area. It'd be like Summit Disney. You could make a special summit facility where everyone just always goes for their summits in the middle of nowhere. It could be in Australia. We do it in the desert in Australia. In my area, they turned off all the lights at night. The street lights, the or street they made light. you turn your lights no, off? No, 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 all the street lights. There were around like 12 helicopters until 11.30. But why is all that? I mean, these are leaders to serve the people, to protect the people, not vice versa. It doesn't make sense. Albert, what do you think? Is this the price Brussels has to pay for being an international capital, or is it a little bit over the top? I think that they need that kind of protection. What would happen to the world if one of them was shot, you know, or there was a bomb? It also affected my life recently when I was trying to walk through Park Royale. And the whole park was closed because they were checking all the bins because Trump was going to be in and around the area. So a whole They closed down the bike parking stations all around the U.S. Embassy. Yeah, yeah. "Hmm." (laughs) For three days, you're going to park a bike. It's really inconvenient to live in a center of power, isn't it? Yeah. Possibly maybe they can call it like a holiday. Like, you know, to give everyone, all the fonctionnaires, all the workers in Brussels, the day off just because there's a summit. I think that would increase EU and NATO popularity a lot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, we know you're going to have to work around the clock, but you can have like two days off. And it's a July, so why wouldn't they? Well, you thought that was our big summit WTF. We've got another one where Boris Johnson stood up the German foreign minister and all of the other foreign ministers at a specially convened Western Balkans summit that Global Britain wanted to host in London. But Boris Johnson was too busy resigning that day to actually stand up for the policy of Global Britain. I don't know where to begin on that one, but I thought we had to throw it in there. Imagine being like the Western Balkans and saying, no, 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 Boris, seriously, don't worry. Like we can get any other, literally any other EU (laughs) member state to arrange this. You're fine. And then he resigns on the day that he's insisted on the day of your event that he's insisted on hosting. That's gas. I love it. And then complains that Britain is becoming a colony under the new Brexit policy. And it's like, well, you kind of treated all of those countries like they were your colonies by not turning up. I think it's a very calculated moment from him where all the light and all the attention was on uh, European attention, let's say, on London. And he says, hey, listen, look, I'm embarrassing the prime minister. I'm embarrassing the government. I'm embarrassing everyone. And here I'm resigning. That is a very interesting theory. And very interesting statement from Madame Mogherini when she said, like, uh, countries are fighting to join while there are countries uh, fighting among each other to leave. So... Timely. That is a strange I, I think situation. It, yeah, very strange. Alva, you want to make a point about... <laughs> I was just going to say, because Lita kept saying, I'm embarrassing, I'm embarrassing. And doesn't that sum up Boris Johnson? He was an incredibly bad foreign minister. And he obviously didn't want to be foreign secretary. So, I mean, he yes. Was, like, he's trying just, to get fired. I am embarrassing, time. full stop. Yeah. Well, also, I I want to elaborate on your theory, (laughs) Lena, because it was calculated in lots of ways. Not many people bring in photographers to get photographs taken of 
one's signing one's resignation letter, which is what Boris Johnson did. So maybe he did time it in the middle of that summit. We were all interested in his uh, resignation and his statement and reaction of Madame May uh, rather than what were the outcomes of the summit. So really, of course. it was really good. But now that you mentioned Madame Mogherini, I want to mention her now as well, because we were checking on all of the transparency calendars of the European commissioners and the high representative for foreign policy this week. And she is number one in our list of sloppy commissioners, because according to her transparency calendar, she hasn't had a meeting with any kind of stakeholder or lobbyist since October 2017. We all know that's not true. And then the meeting before that was in February 2017. So uh, I surmise that she was too busy saving the Iran deal to tell us about anyone that she was meeting with in order to to save Mm. the Iran deal. Just wanted to mention that we don't need any comments, I don't think. Yeah, let's hope that they will make some reaction her cabinet and the army of spokesperson that she has, no? We can only hope. Uh, We've got one more EU WTF, and that was of a male-only EU task force that submitted its report this week. The task of this group of men was to look at subsidiarity and proportionality in the EU. So it's a very EU thing because almost no one knows what that means. In plain English, that is a reference to how can you devolve decision-making and make sure you're not overstepping the mark as EU rulemakers, basically. Anyway, I just thought it was hilarious that people in charge of proportionality couldn't figure out the proportions of gender on their own panel. You know, gender equality is like a core competence of the EU. It's absolutely terrible. And also, I noticed that there wasn't any civil society in this panel either. It's not just not very inclusive. And... Why did he tweet that? Or yeah, so I'm going to read out this Juncker tweet now, or this Juncker comment, and the quote is, I want our union to focus on things that matter to citizens. This is why I set up a task force to make sure we are only acting where the EU adds value. And he wants this to go to the heart of future work of the EU. Yeah, so, like, why are there nine men in this photo? I would have buried that picture. Oh, God, I would have put it as far away. Yeah, I definitely I would, never would not have, have made my picture. female spokesperson tweet it out. I would never, yeah, I would never have even tweeted it. Once you, I think some people, they re- only realise after the fact that they have a mantle. You know, they're like, oh, God, oopsie-daisy, I forgot because most of the high-level people are men because of gender inequality. And then... That but, works for a one-off panel, even though yeah. it's bad. These people were meeting for eight months to come up with these recommendations, yeah. and at no but, point did they say, hang on, should we invite a woman into the room? That tells you the, the machine is tired, and they don't internalize their own lectures and preachings. It's just about talking, but they don't talk out of conviction. They don't practice. They don't have it in action. If eight months of meetings and then we have this photo and this tweet, it just tells you that we just needed to do that without really thinking what is the objective of all these meetings. Just And the man in the center of the photo, the first vice president of the commission, Franz Timmermans, <laughs> I've heard him give some very beautiful speeches about equality of all kinds, including gender equality, including his support for the Me Too movement. I really think, Franz Timmermans, you definitely can do better. It will be interesting to see our women leadership and commissioners in this commission, what they would be commenting on this photo and in, on this report. We'll check with them. Yeah. I'll ask them for some comment and we'll report back yeah. uh, to see if they have any views. Lena, Alva, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of EU Confidential. It was a pleasure. See you next time. And that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Wherever you found the podcast, please take a minute to rate, review, or subscribe to it so that we can bring it to you easier and quicker next time round. 
Thanks, as always, to Wei Dong Lin, Antonio Fernandez, Nicole Fallett, and Andrew Gray. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.